What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, the Inflation Reduction Act, Matt and I talk about it a lot as it relates to ESG, as it relates to taxes, as it relates to climate. But the title, Inflation Reduction Act, as I read through I it, I'm like, get my hands around it. is it reducing inflation? I, I don't know. I'd Car- say yesterday we talked with Sadek Waba, yes. right from I Squared Capital. Smart he used dude. to run infrastructure at Morgan Stanley. This guy is super plugged in and way smarter than me, like yep. exponentially smarter. And he said it is longer term going to have a serious right. impact on inflation. All right, good for him. Kara Murphy, CIO of Kestra Holdings, joins us today. Kara, what do you, what's your read of this Inflation Reduction Act? How should we think about it here? Well, I have to say, I'm with you guys, and I think the title is a very clever piece of marketing. So kudos to whoever came up with the name. (laughs) But I agree. Once you dig in, I mean, this is really about climate change policy. It's about access to health care. It's not about inflation. The thing that, I mean, I understand why they named it that, right? Got to sell it, babe. They're selling it. And I don't even know how smart it was, because when you look at the details, you start to think, this has nothing to do with inflation. But what gets me is they left in the carried interest tax loophole for you know rich pe guys and good for those rich pe guys i'm not you know (laughs) knocking them but it just doesn't sound like something the democrats would do then they didn't put the salt deduction in which hurts middle class people like me you know (laughs) and that seems like something the democrats would want to i don't understand how this is a democratic bill frankly uh on the tax side of things yeah, I have to agree, and it's a disappointment that those two got, you know, left on the cutting room floor. Because I think those those are those have been objectives of you know Democrats and others for quite some time. Now they did get in the corporate minimum tax, which has been a goal, and a tax on share repurchases. So, you know, that gets a little bit more to turning the screws on some companies in a way that you know supports democratic policy goals. Um, but I think, you know, some of those other things that were left out were disappointing. What do you think about that? I mean, are they throwing a, a big, giant blanket over all large corporations and saying, you know, these companies are all from now I'm going to pay 15 percent minimum? No, I, I mean, when we look at the numbers, it's really just on the margin. I mean, it's a handful of companies that are going to be very impacted by that corporate minimum tax. Um, and I think politically it plays very well, too, right? This idea that very large, very profitable companies are able to avoid paying any taxes does not sit well with a lot of Americans. So I, I think it helps to kind of close, close the loophole, but really isn't going to impact all that many companies. Kara, we, we've got somebody here at Bloomberg, uh, Vince Signorelli. He's a strategist for us here, and he spent his career on Wall Street uh, trading uh, currencies and bonds and all that kind of stuff. He kind of says... This focus by the Fed on inflation is misplaced. He kind of feels like inflation's kind of taking care of itself. And mm-hmm. I only look at, you know, I look at gasoline prices, $3.91 a barrel for regular. A gallon. A gallon. A gallon thank you. Did I say barrel again? Yeah. A, a gallon. I do that all the time. Okay. So, and that's for regular and let it. So, 
what's your call on inflation here? So it's interesting because I, we've sort of been in that same camp in that for goods prices, at least, it's pretty easy to follow the pig and the python and see how these inflationary pressures are working themselves out. And, and you know, things like container prices subsiding, commodity prices easing. The harder part is on the services side. Those are prices that tend to move around a lot less and have still seen a lot of inflation. Um, those prices tend to be very closely aligned with the labor market. So cooling the labor market is going to be really key to bringing that down. And we started to see some anecdotal evidence that the labor market is cooling, but that yeah. typically takes a lot longer. So I think that will be the more difficult objective. Well, and not even um, really anecdotal anymore. Yesterday, I saw a survey from PricewaterhouseCoopers. And they talked to more than 700 U.S. executives and board members across a range of industries. They said or they found that um, half of respondents said they're reducing headcount or plan to. 52 percent have implemented hiring freezes. Um, more than four in 10 are rescinding job offers. This is these are some real uh, storm clouds on the horizon. Yeah, for sure. And, and those will start to work their way into the actual numbers over the next couple of months. So I think this will be, you know, a big headwind. And I've been warning folks who are sort of newer to the job market that this is not a normal job market. This is so much easier to get a job than we often see during cycles. So I think folks who have only been in the job market for a couple of years really need to brace themselves. But Kara, can I ask you about something completely different here? Looking through your of resume, um, I'm guessing you fell in love with Prague at some point and decided to stay there for <laughs> I a while. Sure did. Do they not have the best beer in the world? I have never in all of my travels, and I drink beer everywhere I go, sure. have yeah. better beer, had better beer than in the Czech Republic. It is so true. And the Czechs pride themselves on drinking the largest amount of beer per capita in the world. <laughs> and there's a reason. <laughs> That's great. So... All right. So, Kara, I mean, you know, it, it's interesting in this economy here. Um, it, it, we focus on the consumer. The consumer seems like in pretty decent shape, it seems like. The consumer has been so confounding because you're absolutely right. You know, job, we, we talked about the job market slowing, but right now it's very, very strong. Wages are up. Uh, consumer balance sheets are very strong. But consumer confidence continues to look really poor. Yeah, I right. mean, it's among the lowest that we've had in quite a number of years. So uh, consumers are spending money like they feel good, but they're telling us that they don't feel good. Yeah, and I'm worried that's going to fall off a cliff here. When this yep. when this job news uh, comes home to roost and savings are down, I know that data is a yep. little bit sketchy, but um, credit card use is going up. At some point, I'm worried the they consumer. just right. drop. All right. Kara, thank you so much for joining us. Kara Murphy, CIO of Kestra Holdings here. She has a master's in international relations at University of Chicago and a BS in international politics from Georgetown. That's pretty darn good. I mean, you go to Georgetown, you're thinking about public service, you know, going into government, all that kind of good stuff. And then she gets a master's at Chicago. Not bad. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. 
Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Looking at Bitcoin. 8.3 percent 21,475 uh for bitcoin and we can talk bitcoin because tom keen is not here it's generally during surveillance it is a bitcoin free studio but everett millman he's chief markets analyst at gainesville coins you look at precious metals uh, at gainesville coins everett but uh we also like talking to you about uh, bitcoin any thoughts here about what we're seeing is this just a trading thing that is it hey, because of the fed it's because of the well, fed right yeah i guess you're right i guess you're right what do you what do you have for us everett well, sure. I think uh, basically across markets right now, pointing to the Fed is going to be the correct answer more often than not. But really, what I look at with the cryptocurrency market as it stands is it's caught in a bit of a catch-22. Um, the Ugh, lack of a book. regulatory <laughs> one of my favorites. The lack of a regulatory framework um, is certainly hampering adoption of Bitcoin and other cryptos. But on the other hand, uh, tight regulation really is antithetical to the core principles of Bitcoin and many other cryptos, which is to say that uh, the entire animus behind Bitcoin is to have completely private and largely anonymous transactions through a decentralized network. So the more that regulation Amen, comes in, the less likely that is to be the case. Uh, but again, I think almost anyone involved in the crypto space wants to see some sort of regulation uh, to kind of put some people's fears to rest. Well, it's exactly the people who are selling, you know, the picks and uh, wheelbarrows. They, they want to see regulation because that's how they make their money on, on, on the whole gold rush, not actually the gold. The people who are into um, Bitcoin for real don't want to see um, censorship, government censorship allowed on money. Right. I talked to um, the CEO of Kraken a couple of days ago, and I thought it was really interesting because he's, Kraken? he's kind of torn. Kraken's one of the biggest uh, crypto exchanges. Okay. All right. Jesse Powell yeah. is the CEO, and he's you can when you talk to him, you can see he's clearly torn because on the one hand, he has this business. He employs a ton of people. He wants to make money and regulation and working with the government is it goes hand in hand with that. On the other hand, he's clearly like an early stage Bitcoiner who wants who has the kind of libertarian viewpoint. And you just can't reconcile those two things. I tend to agree. I think the, the idealism behind Bitcoin, as you said, it has this sort of libertarian bent to being sound money and being censorship resistant. Um, even on a personal level, that was one of the main reasons that I got interested in Bitcoin early on. <clears throat> but as we see, there really does need to be some establishment backing. Um, and, you know, some regulation would certainly spur that. We've seen that over the past year, a lot of major U.S. corporations have been rather enthusiastic investors in, in crypto startups, 
but it's still on the order of, of about a billion dollars over a 12-month period. Um, that's being held back because, again, if they make those investments, they start businesses, and then here comes Washington with a hammer to crush all of those businesses, well, that's, um, that's, that's a reason to not invest. That's a reason right. to shy away. So we're still seeing that play out. Well, I mean, Everett, I tend to see it like this. There does need to be regulation, and there has to be a framework for Bitcoin to work with governments around the world if you want it to trade trade for $20,000, right? If you want a Bitcoin to cost $10,000, if you need it to cost five grand for Bitcoin, then yes. But not if you don't care about that. Not if you're someone who um, wants to use Bitcoin just within the community of people who all have the same principles. Because if you open it up to regulation, as we've seen with um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, they're going to censor it. They're going to tell exchanges, you can't trade with anybody who has a Russian residence, which, I mean, you can have your own view on what Vladimir Putin does, but certainly some random dude, you know, in in the uh, suburban or, or urban area uh, or rural areas of Russia has little to do with that. Correct. And, and that is a constant threat, um, not just from censorship, but from the idea that, uh, you know, governments and central banks would sort of co-opt the idea with central bank digital currencies that would, because they're government money, they, they would be very, um, they would have no resistance to, to censorship. Um, and we're still obviously, although Bitcoin's been around about a decade, we're still at these early stages uh, where the the, the path forward is not entirely clear. And then we have to also take into account that it is not like Bitcoin against one central enemy. Um, you have governments all over the world with their own individual interests that are kind of attacking this problem from their own angles. So I think that does create, a, although a very kind of Wild West dynamic, um, it is still fertile ground for some growth and experimentation with how uh, how best to tackle this from a regulatory standpoint. Where is Lutz, Florida? Ah, so it is just north of Tampa. It's in the Tampa Bay area. That's where uh, you guys, that, that's where your base, right? Yes, that's uh, where Gainesville Coins headquarters is. The name is a holdover from where we were founded. Um, but we do also uh, have offices internationally um, in, in London and one in Singapore. All right, so Gainesville is, what's Gainesville? Isn't that the Gators? Is that the University of Florida? Yeah. Yeah. University of Florida in uh, the central part of the state. All right. Awesome. All right. And then Tallahassee's Florida State. All right. I'm just getting my because you think about Florida, you know, uh, you know, I just kind of think South Florida, but you got to you got to go to Tallahassee for Florida State. Well, personally, I love the panhandle. There. Oh, the best. I, beaches I love there. like Destin. Yes. You know? The best beaches. Uh, literally, folks listening around the world, you want to go to the best beaches in the U.S., uh, Destin, Florida, and that kind of panhandle is awesome. All right, Everett, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate talking to you. Everett Millman, he's the chief market analyst at Gainesville Coins, located in beautiful Lutz, Florida, just north of Tampa. Matt, I spend a lot of time in the central California coast. And I tell you, you know, like around Salinas, you look as far as the eye can see, literally, are farms and it's like we're most it just seems like most of our country's fruits and veggies come from i mean they're just everywhere for aunt miles and miles and miles and miles and miles and one of the big companies there in watsonville uh is driscoll's think strawberries fresh strawberries those are the folks that bring you that kind of stuff so soren bjorn he's a president of driscoll's of the americas they are in fact based in watsonville california near my crib in carmel 
Uh, Soren, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about your business here. How is it from both a supply, you know, in terms of the, the farms, the, the environment, all that type of stuff, as well as the demand for your products? Yeah, and for the most part, I would say these things have been pretty good. Um, I think the reality is, as more people work from home and had to get a mid-morning snack or an afternoon snack, you know, they, they went to berries very frequently. And so the demand side in our business has been very strong the last couple of years. And we actually don't really see that ending as we sort of coming out on the other side. And so I think the demand side has been very good. Production is way more challenged. Um, we certainly had some pretty significant weather events. And then inflation, of course, is hitting us. I mean, we are planting next year's crop right now, and we are doing that with a, a cost structure that's, uh, that we've never seen before. So what? So uh, inflation I, is going to be with us. I, I can think of a, a few ways in which inflation would hit you. One of the um, stories we've been seeing a lot lately is the water shortage in California. Is that an issue for you? I mean, it's definitely an issue in the long run. Uh, I think the reality is we have enough water today to grow the crops we have but we are there are several places where we're getting rationed down to sort of the minimum level where that we need and if we get rationed anymore then then some of the crops will not become viable so if you get rationed anymore you can't say all right well we'll spend another 10 20 percent there's there's little you can do right yeah i mean typically the way it, it gets allocated out is like on a, on a per acre basis and we need about you know two and a half acre feet of water to grow a strawberry crop and if our allocation goes below that, you're just not going to have a productive crop, right? So, and we are right there on the on the edge of that in, in a couple of districts in Southern California. Uh, Soren, talk to us about your labor situation. We hear about it, you know, across almost every single industry, uh, you know, over the last several years, a, a labor shortage. And of course, your labor, uh, you know, market is a little bit unique. It's a lot of uh, immigrants, legal and illegal. Talk to us about your labor supply, kind of what you're doing there. Yeah, I mean, I think the, what's happening in California now is we are finally seeing a, a significant in, increase in the agricultural labor coming in under the H-2A guest worker program. Really not something that you saw very much in California. It's much more common on the East Coast. And uh, that's what's needed to supplement the shortage that we have. Uh, without that, we, we simply couldn't pick the crops. And we expect that to increase year after year after year going forward. So even if you're bringing in workers from other countries, I, I'm assuming um, wage costs are still going up. There must be some pressure there with the inflation that everyone's seeing. Yeah, and I think on top of that, you know, California has passed, you know, a number of pieces of legislation that's made labor costs a lot more expensive. So even before, you know, the, the general economy start feeling inflation, we've been feeling inflation for quite a long time. I would say for almost 10 years, uh, labor costs have been going up at twice the rate of inflation. And so we've been dealing with this for a long time. And so efficiencies and you know, increase in productivity has been major focus of ours for, you know, I would say the last six, seven years. So are, are consumers willing to pay um, the boost in prices? You know, every time I go to the grocery store, I throw a couple of boxes of strawberries and blueberries in the cart without looking. But my wife says, wait a second, <laughs> those are $10 a box. You know, I don't know where we're shopping, but you get my, you get my point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, I think the good news is and is that consumers are willing to pay for really good fruits. Okay, that's, uh, you know, if consumers are not going to trade down to cheaper, lower quality strawberries. I think that the evidence of that is very clear. Uh, our company has historically done well when there's been an economic downturn. 
because consumers may trade down their car or their vacation or not eat out as much, but they're not they're never trading down the quality of their berries when they eat them at home. Hmm. So, so that's definitely we believe that that's here to stay, and that sort of makes sense, right? This is a a relatively cheap indulgence, and um, there's really no reason to go after the three dollars strawberries when you can get better four dollars strawberries. So, Driscoll's again. I I know the brand, and if our listeners go Google it, you'll you'll recognize the brand immediately when when, when you see it. Um, who does the average California strawberry? Who does that? Who does it compete with? You know, I think we, we like to think that we compete against, you know, the snacking alternatives, right? And that's what uh-huh. we've seen throughout the pandemic. We're not really competing against the other fruits. Uh, we really, I mean, competing for a share of the consumer stomach. <laughs> and so we're really focused on going outside and looking to bring consumers in and coming in from other categories and, uh, and make them, you know, make a healthier choice and eat fresh berries instead. I was wondering what the cheaper, I guess the cheaper alternative would just be older and yuckier, as my daughter would say, strawberries. Right. So <laughs> you're obviously going to pick the best looking box that you can find at the store, right? What? What? what yeah, uh, sure. You don't. You don't compete with um, bananas. You don't compete with kiwis or, or blueberries. I mean, in the end, there's only so much fruit that ends up in the shopping basket. So of course, there is some of that going on. And um, but you know, strawberries is by far the number one category in produce, and it's is is the fastest growing category. It has been so for ten years. I it's not twice that. the size no. of the next, the second biggest fruit oh, category, sorry. which would be apples. And uh, you know, bananas is not growing that much and hasn't really grown for a long time. And I think it's just the, it's the versatility of berries, it's the health benefits of berries, it's the indulgence of berries. Right? I mean, there are not too many categories to sort of check all the boxes. Yeah. And uh, we are very fortunate that ours does. So, Soren, just, you know, I spend a lot of time in the Central Valley. I see the folks picking the berries. So my question is, what is the time between the berry getting picked in Watsonville or Salinas and getting to a supermarket in New Jersey? Yeah, that sounds expensive. It's gotten expensive to get the truck across. I mean, well over $10,000 would be typical to get that truck across. We will have it there in three to four days, wow. right? And then it got to get through a distribution center in New Jersey and then out to the store, right? And so, uh, you know, New Jersey consumers probably realistically uh, can get their hands on the berries in six to seven, maybe eight days, depending on, you know, exactly where it's at. So, it's, you know, it's pretty fast. Yeah. And, that's the kind um, of trucking I want to do. I know. That's the, when I get my CDL, that's what I want to do. You're going to go from Watsonville I'm to I'm not doing these little 100-mile jaunts. Yeah, I want to go across country in three to four days. All right, it's good stuff. I'm telling you, folks, you go to Central Valley, California, and it is amazing Oh, and we're going to go see. back to Central Valley. We're going to go back to California in just a little bit. You know why? Why? Because we're going to talk to the CEO of Lamborghini. He's at oh. Pebble Beach. Oh, he's at Pebble Beach. All right. That's how, right far away, how far away are you, Soren, from Pebble Beach? I'm 20 miles away, okay, and I saw all the cars yesterday. So it's quite a <laughs> There you go. Definitely worth going up to go and see all right, good stuff. Soren Bjorn, president of Driscoll's of the Americas. Think strawberries, blueberries, all that kind of stuff. And it, I tell you, it's just awe-inspiring to see these uh, huge, huge vegetable and fruit farms in the Central Valley of California truly feeding uh, the rest of the country. It's really cool stuff. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. 
I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Carmen Royal joins us. She's a credit reporter for Bloomberg News. She's got an article out today showing that banks are retreating. Some banks, like even Wells Fargo. Especially Wells Fargo. That's the one, because that's where I had my mortgage when I had my mortgage for about 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. I got my mortgage from Wells Fargo. Carmen, how can a bank, how can the banking industry, like, like a Wells Fargo, pull back even slightly from the mortgage market? Isn't that what their job is? Yes, of course, that's that's what they do, but they, they do certain kinds of mortgages, especially after 08. Um, before 08, they did all kinds of mortgages. They did like the riskier ones, the ones that were that are now backed by the government. But right now, they've kind of retreated. They do only more like Freddie and Fannie Mac mortgages, which has left like a lot of space from non-bank lenders to kind of grow in this riskier parts of the mortgage world. Um, and now that's becoming an issue with like basically no business coming in, rates really high and a whole change in the rate cycle. Yeah, so the the rate cycle is basically killing this business. Is regulation also a part of that? I mean, the rates is something, Carmen, that we can very easily see. You look at the uh, mortgage rates and they're up over 5%. Some I've seen as high as 6 um, And so I understand consumers are going to be turned away by, by that, having been used to very low rates for the last decade. What about regulations? Is that a part of the problem? Right now, right, like, Regulation was kind of part of the problem after 08, and a lot of banks retreated then. Right now, the, the consequence of that is that right now, basically, um, two-thirds of the top 20 lenders are non-bank lenders, whereas before the crisis, it was about a third of the top, top 20 lenders were independent firms. And that's kind of the problem. The fact that this non- non-bank lenders have much less capital to kind of maneuver compared to banks, and they also don't have a lot of access to emergency funding or other lines of credit like that. So uh, how bad is it going to be for these uh, non-bank mortgage lenders? I mean, it's I, again, as you mentioned, they don't have the capital. They don't have a lot of the support. Well, everybody's pulling it. If Wells Fargo is shrinking and the non-bank lenders can't participate, who's going to be around to give us mortgages? <laughs> Someone will be there. Not, not everyone's going to disappear. But it's certainly going to consolidate a little bit. They were, in, especially in this riskier space, they were, which was basically only independent non-banks, um, they're, that that's where mo- most of the pain is going to come from um, because they, they don't have that government backing. So if the loans drop in value, they can't really go to the GSCs to kind of get funding from them. And that's why we've seen like some bankruptcies and they've been mostly focused on this space. So, in you know, I'm looking at the, uh, uh, the story here and there's a couple of names, Sprout Mortgage, First Guarantee Mortgage, 
I mean, yeah. I'm not even sure I'd go for a mortgage with one of these people. But uh, Why? If the they, rate's right, you're going to do it. I guess. But who goes to these types of mortgage players? So the, it's usually more for non-qualified mortgages, uh, which is, for instance, if you don't have like W-2s or basically if you're not eligible for mortgages that are backed by Fannie and Freddie okay. or Ginny. Um, so you that's the type of mortgages that are mostly done by non-bank lenders uh, and that banks kind of retreated from after 08 because they were the riskiest ones and they were the ones that kind of like got a little bit more regulated. And First, um, first Guarantee is owned by PIMCO. Yeah. That got my attention. Yeah. I mean, what are they doing yeah. in that business? All right, good stuff. Interesting here. I mean, it's uh, you don't think about it so much, but as you know, interest rates go up and maybe some challenges. Dude, I think about bars. it. A, you don't I think know. about it so much because you just sold your house and Boom. you never had a mortgage to begin with. Note dumped it. I think about it because it took me months to get a mortgage. It was a painful, painful process. Why? You're you're a good credit, right? Well, 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 I did get a good rate, but I still had to you know, show all of these documents. I had no idea where they are. I don't but, keep stuff. But you're you know? a star on television. You just didn't say, hey, go look, see me on TV tomorrow, and that's I, good I, enough? I said, you know what? Cable news fame. And they were like, who are you again? <laughs> exactly. All right, Carmen Arroyo, credit reporter for Bloomberg News, with that story out today and her team uh, looking at the uh, kind of the, uh, the mortgage market, but not from some of the mortgage players you might think about. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.